Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray uh, and we've got a special show for you today. I'm still in the Washington DC area and we've got two local co-hosts uh, with us here in our makeshift studio in uh, Dmitry Alperovich's dining room. Uh, we have with us the first ever director of CISA, uh, Chris Krebs, who is also a co-founder of the Krebs Stamos Group. G'day Chris. Patrick, how are you? I am great. And uh, also, we have with us, of course, Dmitry Alperovich, the uh, co-founder of CrowdStrike turned geopolitics guy, and uh, also a podcaster. Geopolitics Decanted is the name of his podcast. It's very, very good. Uh, Dimitri, thanks for joining us. Hey, Patrick, when are you moving out? <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been a very, very fun... Uh, Ten days, and uh, I'm, I'm here for a few more days, and then um, and then headed out. But it's 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 been terrific. So uh, we'll be talking through all the week's news uh, with these guys in just a minute. And I should mention too that I am taking three weeks off after today's episode. Uh, I am on vacation, so set your you know alert levels accordingly. Uh, Adam Boileau is going to be holding the fort uh, back in APAC, so you can still get your six risky biz podcasts every week delivered into your ear holes by subscribing to our second podcast feed. That feed is called Risky Business News. And I'm really surprised actually that there are still listeners of this show uh, who don't know that that feed exists. So you can find it by searching for Risky Business News wherever you get your podcasts. It is a separate feed. This week's show is brought to you by Grey Noise and Grey Noise's uh, founder, Andrew Morris, is this week's sponsor guest. And funnily enough, we recorded this interview a few weeks ago when I was still in Australia, but when I first got to the US, I actually spent a weekend at Andrew's place uh, and he was a terrific host and that was a lot of fun. So thank you, Andrew. Uh, but in this week's sponsor interview, he's going to be talking about how he's using large language models to automate the tagging of a lot of this shady internet traffic that gets picked up by Grey Noise's sensors. Uh, and, you know, if you're a bar humbug AI hater like me, uh, it is actually somewhat annoying how well uh, Grey Noise's thing works. Uh, that is coming up later, but let's get into the news now uh, with Dimitri and Chris. And we're going to start off by talking about, you know, and it's and it's the talk of the town, really, uh, this SEC enforcement action against SolarWinds and the SolarWinds CISO. I understand too, Chris, let's start with you. Uh, SolarWinds were once upon a time one of your clients, so I'm guessing you're not going to get into the specifics here. Uh, but, you know, in general, what do you think about an action like this? They uh, they were, in fact, client number one with the Krebs Stamos Group, uh, first, first client in the door. So obviously not going to be able to talk to the specifics of uh, solar winds, but I, you know, I think there's there are kind of two outcomes here. First is that if you're working in an organization, and again, I'm not making this specific to solar winds, but there will be a chilling effect, I think, across industry, where if you're a CISO in an organization, publicly traded specifically, that is not fully empowered by the C-suite, that is not fully resourced, equipped with the appropriate personnel, then your risk tolerance just dropped a whole bunch. And I would not be surprised to see, again, publicly traded companies subject to SEC oversight to see some turnover in the CISO ranks. Because this, you know, getting the Wells notice this summer, which means, hey, we're, we're in pursuing an enforcement action against you. You have time to object here. And then to, to see this, uh, the actual enforcement action go forward, it's, it's got to be scary for, for CISOs out there. Um, at a, at yeah. a minimum, you're probably asking for a raise, right? I, dude, I, I don't know if that covers it, right? No, I of mean, course not. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I got a 20% pay bump, but oh no, I'm banned from it, ever being a director of a company. And, you, and your insurance yeah. policies aren't going to cover it because, you know, they don't cover fraud or at least, you know, 
That's the allegation. And, well, and that's, well, what, the, the that, that's what the SEC is alleging here. Like, it's serious stuff. Like, the, the interesting is, thing is that depending on the company, DNO insurance, directors and officers of insurance, may not cover you if you're not actually an officer of the company right. or a director of the company. So uh, at a minimum, if you're a CISO, you might be asking for, to review those policies and ask for special coverage or be, be added to the, that existing coverage. Well, but, but along with ENO, errors and emissions, that's not going to cover it either, potentially, because it's fraud. And, and you can't, you can't, you know, insurance policy your way around that. Uh, so th- I think that's one possible outcome here is that we do see some turnover in, in the, the ranks of the CISO community. But on the flip side of that, I'm sure that there are CISOs out there in more mature companies that are well-resourced, that have the support of their leadership that are probably not sweating this at all. Yeah. Because they're like, look, I don't have to do that. If I have challenges, I go to my leadership, I get the budget I need. I'm not getting paper in front of me that says X, Y, or Z that I'm signing off on. So, uh, again, independent of this case in particular, there are going to be But we, but some we don't want a situation fallbacks. where we've got CISOs, like an exodus of CISOs from the companies that really need CISOs, you know? Like that's the that's a bit but of a. I think at a minimum, what you are going to have, and we were talking about this earlier because Matt Levine from Bloomberg had a great column it on was this. So good, it's but, so but, good. But the, the worst thing for SolarWinds here was the fact that you had all these emails in writing from uh, engineers of the company saying how bad things are. So at a minimum, you're going to have policies from the legal departments saying, "Don't write that stuff." Yes. Right. Get it out of email. Get it out of discoverable information, because if you don't know for a fact that your policies have been problem, then SEC can't claim it's securities fraud. I mean, just for my, you know, I'm obviously not a lawyer and I read the SEC release on this and I'm like, wow, this does actually seem pretty weak source. Like I thought everyone got really uptight when the stuff happened with Joe Sullivan around Uber. To me, that always seemed like, uh, you know, at the very least there was a case that had to be worked through there. But you look at this and you just think, how many companies do we know right, where the state of the security, like, you know, there's, there's people internal warning about all, all sorts of horrible things. Like, that's pretty much situation normal but, but and I th- an awful lot of companies. I think SEC actually knows this, and I think what they're trying to do is make an example of, out of SolarWinds in the hope, I, I don't think it'll actually work, but in the hope that it's going to raise the security um, uh, uh, standards across all kinds of organizations, I think what's going to happen is that people are going to get more lawyered up, they're going to want to say, mm-hmm. I don't want to know this, Versus, I'm actually going to spend the effort on making myself more secure. Yeah, I mean, are you are you awaiting some sort of magical brief of evidence that's going to make this look less dumb than it is, Chris? Or do you think it is as dumb as it looks? I mean, when you when you read the the filing, there are some claims I think in there that are that are a little bit out there by the SEC that that you know that the defense counsel should have maybe some degree of success. In, in the case, but again, kind of stepping back there. So there was a good Steve Schmidt article. So AWS, um, or I guess Amazon chief security officer now, and you know, it's like the six or seven questions you should ask your board. I think it was in fortune or something like that. And, you know, he said, one of them is like, who really owns the risk? And it's the business unit or the division head. Now I agree with that, that, that those that own the business need to be able to accept the risk here. But that's not what we're seeing play out here. And I, don't, I think that's, that's not what the board expects. The board is expecting that the CISO that's tabbed with the chief and the information and the security and the officer label is the one that's, that's signing off on these things. And so we, we, we're going to have to right-size this. And you know, I've said this before, but I've never met a CISO that is successful 
when their C-suite doesn't support them. Like that is like, sure. that is the threshold question for how you're going to get through all this stuff. Yeah. But, but you know, I, I thought the weakest part of the um, SEC filing The password stuff? Well, well, the password stuff is fine, but their claim, and I'll read it uh, from the filing right now, a reasonable investor considering whether to purchase or sell SolarWinds stock would have considered it important to know the true state of SolarWinds password policies. Yes. Like what investor, I, I'm not even talking about a reasonable investor. I wonder if there's a single investor in the world, even the most sophisticated hedge fund that is actually looking not just at the password policy, but the security policy no, of any not. company before they're investing it, in that company or deciding to sell, yeah, yeah, sell the company's stock. There's this whole section of the SEC complaint, which talks about SolarWinds, like, you know, misrepresenting the state of its password policy to the market. And like, yeah, find me an investor who, who cares and Matt Levine look for those who don't know Matt Levine writes a blog for Bloomberg uh, writes a newsletter for Bloomberg I'm sorry uh, called money stuff which unfortunately if you try to get it on the web it's behind a paywall but the email it's it, it's free and it's just terrific and you know he's got a running joke about how uh, everything is securities fraud right and uh, looking at this like yeah passwords uh, bad passwords as securities fraud and it's it's a really intelligent write-up but yeah it just seems it you know, and normally I'm like, well, let's just wait and see, you know, like in the case of the Sullivan stuff, I was very much of that mind. But this, just right out the gate, I mean, it does look pretty dumb. It just does. It's it's going to be interesting to watch and you know that everyone out there in our community is going to keep a tight, tight one on this because it's going to have massive implications one way or the other. But All by right. the way, I think the one difference, and obviously the cases are very, very different between the, the Sullivan uh, prosecution and this, uh, but the important thing about this is that this is a civil measure not a criminal one, right? Yeah. A lot of the CISOs were very concerned about the Solomon case, and I agree with you that I think it was misguided, but going to jail is very different from not being a director of a public company in the future. Well, I mean, the charges were proven against Sullivan and he didn't go to jail. So I think, you know, people were just hyperventilating about that one. Uh, he is appealing it too, so God knows where this is going to be in a couple of years uh, as a case study. But look, let's move on. We've got heaps more stuff to talk about. Uh, but, you know, seeing as I'm in Washington... Uh, may as well talk about the uh, AI executive order. And oh boy, you know, I've spent a bunch of time with policy people since I've been here, uh, been to a bunch of dinners, uh, went to a Hewlett Foundation event in Philadelphia and met with a bunch of people there. And AI is just the talk of the policy people right now. And um, the executive order came out uh, today, wasn't it? When they, uh, when he, he, he signed yesterday. it today? Yesterday. 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 Yeah, so... Uh, I was at the signing. You were at the signing. That's right. So um, what do we think about the the executive order on AI because I have just read the coverage about it. I haven't read the order itself. And I was expecting it to be really infuriatingly dumb and it actually looks kind of reasonable. What do you think? Let's start with you, Chris. First off, it would take probably the entire flight back to Australia for you to get through the EO. It's like 290 it's, pages. Or it's 118 pages. 118 pages. 118 pages. It's a monster. It's probably five to six standalone EOs cobbled together. Cause it, have, it, have you seen an EO that long? This is pretty, I have pretty not. remarkable. I have not. It, it, it covers a lot of waterfront. There are probably 10 different issues uh, involving a dozen plus agencies. So it is, it's, a, it's a beast. But what's also remarkable is the fact that it was not even a year ago. It was November 30th, 2022, when uh, ChatGPT hit public release. So yeah. in 11 months, we're talking 11 months that the technology landscape from a policy perspective has changed just so dramatically. I mean, it, it really, I don't think, dawned on me until RSA conference this year in San Francisco. And what was that, April? 
where go out there and that's all everybody was talking about was was AI. And and just from a cyber perspective alone, it could take up a whole week of conversation. So um, I think that they were able to pull this together, cover as many bases as they as they did. It, it's it's remarkable. It's it's impressive. Well, that's what I thought. And and the fact that they could actually put out something that doesn't just seem like the first take reactionary thing. Do you right. know what I mean? Like someone has yeah. has clearly someone smart has clearly put some time and thought into this, and it covers the whole gamut from model safety to protecting the industry to all sorts of stuff. Dimitri, you've got some thoughts. So that's someone that put a lot of thought into it happens to be a friend of mine, Ben Buchanan, who was responsible for putting this together. Obviously, a lot of people contributed to this, but this is an individual um, that knows AI inside out, wrote a book on AI, has spent several years at the White House working this. That's why you're seeing this being very, very technical. There are specific requirements with regards to interconnect of networking between chips, the maximum computing capacity uh, and floating point operations per second for training models, uh, for doing inference on them. So um, there's a lot of thought that went into this um, on a whole range of topics uh, from regulating biotech, which is a huge concern for people with regards to AI that um, I, I think a lot of people think that um, with good reason that AI is going to revolutionize medicine. That's fantastic, but you could also use it to create very dangerous compounds uh, in the future. So there's attempts to regulate that. Um, there's obviously an attempt to um, introduce watermarking standards to try yep. to deal with the social engineering issue. I think that's going to be really difficult. No one has... I mean, it, dep it, it depends though. I mean, if you've just got the major platforms that are generating things like imagery, if you make it a requirement that they have to watermark stuff, I mean, I think that's a problem. Well, first of all, I think technically doing that could be very challenging in a way that you don't... You can't strip easily the watermark. And secondly... Unfortunately, some of the open source models are getting very, very good. So they are, they being are. able to strip that out. Yeah, but again, is this is thing. a this is a scale thing, right? Like, and I just think if you rob the ability of someone with bad impulse control from just being able to really quickly do something dumb with one of these models and have it not be watermarked, I think that's a positive. Yeah, thing. but, the, but Chris, I, I, you know, Chris has so, got so on the watermarking thing, I, I'm I'm not sure we're thinking about it the right way, and it's not so much social media platforms or whatever that we're worried about. It's going to be content creators that self-apply the watermarking to their own stuff. And so what you start to see is a provenance distribution across the information ecosystem where you can, you can kind of tell the provenance, you can, you can use your own discernment to figure out if it's real or if it's not. So I would expect that the White House, that the, um, that the, the Biden campaign will self-select into whatever the guidelines are and to ensure that the Biden administration or the Biden campaign, that any of the, the, the media that comes out of the campaign is labeled so it can't be misused yeah, yeah, and anything that's not labeled. So, so sort of like, yeah, I've heard people describe it sort of, it's like DRM, but for, you know. I, and I you self-select. Yeah, but but the issue, Chris, is going to be, I mean, yes, from the campaign literature, you may have watermarks coming out of it, but um, when you're on a call with someone, a Zoom call, right, and it's an AI-generated image or it's a voice call, someone calling you up, your ability to discern that that's real or not is going to be very, very difficult going Absolutely, forward. Absolutely, but I'm not but sure that's the use problem. case. But this is a different problem. That's not, yeah, that's uh, yeah, not, I'm not what sure that's the use case. This. Moreover, like, let's be clear here, right? The bad guys aren't going to play ball anyway, yeah. so this is only going to be available. Now, that in and of itself can be useful, right? That's how you can control your own likeness and, and keep to your point about DRM and, and yeah. keep whatever you generate out there. This And this is going to get... It, you know, it's gonna. They're gonna get the end run. They're gonna work around. It. Bad guys are gonna work around. It. This is a couple years, maybe. Yeah. Uh, uh, solution. 
Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be messy, uh, absolutely. Ben Buchanan too, and I just checked, and yeah, this is the author of The Hacker in the State, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he just uh, published a book on AI yeah. uh, last year as well. I haven't read his book, but everybody tells me that I should. From my point of view, you know, I was just at a policy powwow in Philly, and uh, I think the, the 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 thing that really dawned on me is that uh, you know tech is such a fast moving space, and it's very difficult to see what's around corners. So you know trying to focus on making policy move a bit quicker uh, is something that I think everyone should do. And this is just a good example of policy moving quickly. But look, we've spent enough time on AI. Let's move on to some, you know, some proper cyber disasters, shall we say. Um, There is a Citrix bug called Citrix Bleed. And basically you can, you know, the reason they've called it that, I guess it's a little bit Heartbleed-esque in that you can enumerate uh, things out of Citrix servers, including authentication tokens. And, you know, this bug, I think it's been around a little while. And then POX started popping up online. And now it's just, there is just so much scanning. Like last week, we were talking about Cisco, uh, about the number of Cisco devices. What did I call it in the in the subhead? Uh, 40 to 50,000 feral Cisco's, right? <laughs> is what we've wound up with. And now it looks like we've got something similar happening uh, with Citrix Netscalers and ADCs where there's just this mass scanning activity and people are uh, in bulk enumerating access tokens. And I've, I've linked through to Catalan Kimpano's write-up on this. Not really sure what's going to happen next, whether those threat actors are going to like deploy ransomware or whether or not they're just going to start selling those access tokens. But you know, this is just something that's been like the last year or two is just all anything on the edge of the network that's based on anything, you know, not completely modern is just getting done. You oh, know? And the challenge is that people really are not doing a good job of upgrading these things, right? The Fortinet bugs, the Pulse Secure bugs. This is just going to be yet another thing. On Citrix and VMware and all sorts, right? right. But that's going to create problems for years to come and it's going to cause a lot of ransomware, a lot of other intrusions, right? All sorts of actors are going to leverage this. And not just today, not just next month, but two years from now, three years from now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this one's going to be on the Kev list, maintained by CISA, you know, like that. Yeah, but I mean, that doesn't really help us when they're already on. No, no, no. No, it doesn't. No, that's for sure. And I think you need to update your button. So you've got like the America button, um, but you're going to need a Rob Joyce, you know, seizing the high ground button and then your, you know, edge device comment because this is this is evergreen this happens every week yeah on your show there's just some new product that's getting that we're talking about yeah and you know confluence as well there i got a tweet here from andrew morris who's funnily enough this week's sponsor guest but uh they have observed confluence just going absolutely ape uh in their telemetry but there was a real interesting thing in here which is he's noticed that of his sensors that he's got based in china it's not really showing up. And he thinks that is because they block Tor exit nodes, right? For censorship purposes. And that's how a lot of the threat actors do this mass scanning. They use Tor. So, I mean, you know, I've been saying for years on this show that a really nice low cost thing you can do just to get rid of a lot of this sort of stuff from your, you know, from hitting your machines is just block Tor. Or just deploy the great firewall right here, right? (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you're suggesting? Are you pro-censorship? Yeah, no, not at all. But anyway, I've linked through to a couple of tweets there. Uh, Let's talk about triangulation. Now, this is a campaign that targeted researchers at Kaspersky, actually. This was some months ago, and it looked like it was some, you know, most likely some sort of Western intelligence operation targeting people who worked at Kaspersky, their iOS devices. Uh, And Kaspersky managed to catch this 
uh, pull the O'Day out of the payload and get it to Apple. And, you know, that's how we wound up with a bunch of Apple O'Day getting patched at the time this was discovered. But they've now published published a blog post uh, talking about how they were able to get the payload uh, of this thing. And it, and it wasn't entirely straightforward. It's a, it's a great write-up because essentially what, was, what would happen is their device would get owned uh, you know, one of their, their iPhones or whatever would get owned. But the, you know, the threat actor behind this was doing a very good job of nuking the payload like pretty much instantaneously. So it was it was not possible to recover it and, and discover those wonderful bugs. And then, yeah, these these uh, uh, Kaspersky people went down the rabbit hole of uh, trying to get the payload. And and what was interesting too is, is the implant that was being dropped on them didn't survive reboot. So there was this constant process of their devices sort of rebooting and then getting reinfected. So they knew that they would have an opportunity to actually grab these these bugs, and and eventually they did. But Dimitri, you read this, and I know you really enjoyed reading this. Well, th- there are a couple of things that stand out there. One of them is obviously the level of effort, literally months of effort for them that went into trying to capture these exploits, um, and the fact that they didn't give up and and get bored throughout all of this uh, is uh, really a testament. Oh to come it. on, are you going to get bored like when you know you're being owed? Well, actually, iOS bored is the wrong word. The fact that their bosses didn't come and say we're going to pull you and and have you do something else is really yeah, interesting. yeah, yeah. But. Um, what this is actually testament to is how difficult it is to do forensics on iOS devices. Yes, they're incredibly locked down and it's difficult to compromise them, but when you do get compromised, we've talked about this a lot lot of times, it's really, really hard to figure out what is going on, very hard to detect it, and just the level of effort that they went through. Now, they were limited. They probably didn't have access to you know, American forensics uh, tools like Gracia, for example, uh, probably not available. But see, the forensics tools wouldn't have helped them post facts, right? Because the threat actor was dealing with that. I mean, this was less of a forensics issue and more Well, there were forensics issues because they I had to go through the backups to try to get the, uh, some of the data. Yeah, but there was nothing there, like is, is, is my point, right? Right? There was nothing actually there. So this was more of an instrumentation issue where they were actually trying to catch the payload as it came in. Right. And because yeah. Apple just loves locking everybody out of the devices, it was a, it was a, it was a giant sure. pain in but the you-know-what. Bef- before they realized that, they, they went through a lot of effort doing forensics. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, it was a dead end, but because they didn't have some of those capabilities, it took them a long time. But yeah, some of the uh, techniques that Apple has implemented, like certificate penning, made it very difficult to For actually them to get look in the inside middle. The, yeah, yeah. the protocol and actually capture this. They, they, they did a lot of work to try to figure out how to break the exploit um, so that it would actually live some, uh, leave some of the artifacts on the device so that they, then they could use the forensics. Yes. Um, so the forensics were important in the end to actually capture it off the device. So it was still pretty critical, uh, but a lot of effort, but just tells you how difficult this stuff is to analyze. And Apple does not make it easy and does not go through any effort really to make it easier for security researchers to a, figure out that the device is compromised and B, to actually investigate it. I mean, this is just such a wonderful write-up of a bit of cat and mouse and I think everyone will enjoy it. And it's called uh, How to Catch a Wild Triangle. I even appreciate the uh, uh, the blog post there. So it looks like they yeah they did a good job, crushed someone's beautiful, beautiful O'Day. I mean, what's your gut feeling here? Like it, it definitely seems like West, someone Western intelligence, but hard to know who. You kind of get the sense the, that the, if the, it was... The, the fact that there was crypto at literally every stage of the protocol and well done crypto tells you that this is some someone a SIGIN agency that knows what they're doing yeah and combine it with the counter dfir throughout it's just it's yeah it's extreme SIGIN. you know you just got to wonder who right um and you know that and I, I think it's also interesting that they didn't bother with persistence and i wonder if that's because 
they did know that eventually this would get caught. You know, like there's some real, because it's Kaspersky. Well, this is a, a typical model, even with NSO and, and other tools like that. Persistence get your, gets your exploits caught. So you yeah. really don't want to persist. Well, it gets your implants caught, not necessarily your ex exploits, but yeah. Well, uh, yes, Im implants, but implants could lead to, to catching uh, artifacts of the exploits too, potentially. So you really want to leave as little presence on the device as possible. And honestly, like you don't need, when you think about mobile targeting, it's not like targeting a desktop or a server where you need continuous collection. Uh, and a lot of times it's okay to ping that device, you know, every few days, grab the data off yeah. of it and, and, and go on your merry way. So um, it actually lends itself well to those types of um, devices that you're trying to infiltrate. Yeah, and it was like a malicious Apple Watch face uh, uh, file, which is, yeah. Uh, so much fun. And Which took them two months to figure out, right? Yeah, yeah. Delivered via iMessage as well. So yeah, ouch. Uh, now look, we're going to stay with uh, some Kaspersky research here because they've got some cool stuff uh, where they had a look at this thing that they first saw in 2017. And it's a, like it's a crypto miner. But then eventually they took a good look at it and they're like, hang on. This is just pretending to be a crypto miner. Now, it's, I, I think, look, there's a lot of innuendo in the, in the write-ups here because it's got eternal blue in it and stuff. And they're saying, oh, there's some you know, code similarities to the way NSA writes stuff. They're trying to heavily imply uh, you know, NSA involvement. I don't think they've got there uh, necessarily. I mean, it could be them. Who knows? But I just love the idea that some SIGINTER is running around dropping an implant that looks like a coin miner. Because it is great color. Like this is, I mean, it does it? Okay, here's a question, Chris. Does this count as false flagging? <laughs> I I don't see why it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, Dimitri might not agree. But no, I don't agree. I, I think this is blending in the noise. Yeah, uh, because this the purpose of false flagging is, is to, to mislead the assign blame onto Th someone else. This right? is actually yeah. trying to not get caught. Right and well, and I don't know if it's not I mean, you are assigning blame to somebody else. Yeah, yeah criminals. You're, criminals. criminals. you're wearing your you're waving but your little no, criminal no, 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 flag. But the, but the goal is for someone that finds this is to say, oh, this is just a coin miner. Delete, move on. Yeah. Yeah, versus not, looking not deeply and trying yeah, to understand yeah, yeah, how yeah. it works, what it does, and trying to actually publish information about it that would get this blacklisted all over the place. But yeah, no, also no, might it. suggest that it's not in the top tier or echelon of tools that the actor's using. They, yeah. they, they're, you know, they'll burn it and just hope somebody didn't pick up on it. It's not like the prior uh, tool that Kaspersky was unpacking. But I do like that. And I think this is, gonna, this is gonna strike fear into the hearts of a bunch of incident responders listening who previously might've just been able to say, well, that's a known coin miner, get rid mm. of it. Whereas now you kind of might have to go a bit deeper and say, well, is it, you know? It's, it's just great. I love it because everybody's so dismissive of coin miners that it's the perfect thing to pretend to be. You can't pretend to be ransomware anymore because people take ransomware so seriously, but you can pretend to be a coin miner and everyone's like, oh, we'll just get rid of it, it's fine. By the way, there, there's another lesson here in that Kaspersky says they first detected this uh, miner back in 2017, which is years after the NSA Equation Group report came out and yeah. they burned um, uh, the Eternal Blue uh, with the Shadow, Bro Shadow Brokers release. And the fact that some of the code is still present in this new malware mm. shows you how difficult it is to actually write everything from scratch and not have the, um, uh, the, the, the uh, desire to reuse some of the older code. And uh, that's what uh, gets you burned, right? Is that those functions that start appearing elsewhere, even if they're very small uh, and a small part of the, the overall code base can get this connected to other things. Uh, and look, 
Another bit of research out of uh, uh, Kaspersky is looking at a Lazarus campaign, uh, looking at the way they're doing supply chain stuff uh, in inside an unnamed vendor. I mean, we don't really need to talk about this one in depth, but North Korea, I mean, I've, I've, I hate to say, am I a fan? Is that the right word? <laughs> like the stuff they're doing around supply chain infiltration to target crypto, I think is just fascinating. And, and there is a sort of badassness to the way they roll. And then it's funny, actually, because, you know, last night I, I uh, turned up to the um, uh, Alperovich Institute at Johns Hopkins to um, uh, Jason Kichter's class. And we had a bit of a conversation. I spoke with some of the students and, um, you know, I was saying, like, if, if you're not a fan of the sort of crypto ecosystem, like all of this activity has the added benefit of also being quite funny, quite amusing. Right. But, you know, I understand also on another level, it's quite alarming when you can see how effective threat actors can be at worming their way through supply chains. Chris, I mean, you know, you, you were the first director of uh, CISA and this is the sort of thing that I'd imagine when you were director of CISA would kind of leave you cold. Am I right or am I stretching? I think when you look at 17 and you look at not Petcha and bad rabbit and want to cry. And those, you know, not Petcha specifically with me doc. That was what I think was a big shift was looking at the supply chain piece and how adversaries are really starting to go up the, the kind of ladder of, of dependency and reliability. And you just get a much broader spread of, of potential victims. That's where it was a, I think a big wake up call for us and, and you just continue to see it every year. There's something else that kind of follows that model. Yeah. But now the North Koreans are not just, you know, hacking into one company. They're, they're sort of using their supply chain access to access other parts of the supply chain. Right. And they're good at it. And, and you just get the sense that after a while, you know, for as much as we're seeing, I bet there's a whole bunch we don't. And they're sort of creeping into mm -hmm. the, the, the supply chain fabric. And, you know, I'd be lying if I, if I didn't, you know, on, on one level, oddly kind of admire it. Do you, you know what I mean, Dimitri? No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, remember the 3CX uh, issue uh, yeah. from earlier yeah. this year that Amanda discovered where it uh, was originally an X-Trader uh, markets tracking platform and then got into the 3CX um, software. So they're daisy chaining this hacks. And look, I've been saying for over a decade that the North Koreans by far are the most innovative actor out there. Um, they may not be the most technically sophisticated, although they're quite technically sophisticated. Oh, but they're getting there. They're definitely um, getting there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're not quite on the level of a oh, five they're not eyes. like an equation group or anything, yeah. But right, of, of the that's non what I mean. But they're very, yeah. very good. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But on the creativity of the operations, oh my God. They were the first ones to use destructive attacks back in the 2000s. They were the first ones to do uh, the document leaks long before the Russians started uh, doing that with a, with a Sony hack, right? They were the first ones to, to use it to make money from crypto uh, from a nation state perspective. And the, the supply chain stuff, they were not the first ones, but they really excelled at it, right? And um, we talked last, last week about the uh, hiring their people inside right. companies, right? So uh, they're doing a lot of things and they're not afraid to take risks, um, to be creative. And, and they're unconstrained. They clearly don't have lawyers like, uh, you know, over their shoulder every well, 10 seconds. Other actors don't either, but they, they're, they're just really, really creative and willing to try things that others are not. It, it shows, I think, at least in cyber, that this is where necessity is the mother of all invention, really yeah, kind of takes root, and and they have a a smaller set of capabilities, or at least as, access, than the Chinese and the Russians do. And you see them really innovating and hitting pretty hard above their above their weight class. But but also, um, they do a better job than I think anyone else out there 
in grooming their uh, uh, offensive cyber force, right? They identify people in high school that show promise. They put them into the best universities. They really push them through that pipeline to get them into the offensive um, forces. Um, no one, to my knowledge, uh, is as good at that as they are. Obviously, you need a highly authoritarian was that, system. Was that spoken with a note of admiration? <laughs> I'm trying to think. No, but uh, it, I mean, it's yeah, a was huge it correcting issue. my previous tweet uh, regarding ISIL? You do not, under any circumstances, got to hand it to them, right? <laughs> it's the, the, old, the old wint joke. Look, let's move on. Let's move on from this. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, I have linked through to the secure list Kaspersky write-up about this, and it is very interesting. So people can go to our show notes and check that out. Uh, so let's, unfortunately, uh, let's talk about Elon Musk and Starlink because this whole thing briefly came up again and now has been squashed. Uh, obviously, there is a lot going on in uh, Israel-Palestine at the moment, um, and this... Um, you know, military action in Gaza is 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 very intense, and uh, you know the whole thing is just horrible and tense. And um, you know, at one point, it looks like Israel is really intensifying its campaign in the Gaza Strip. And at one point, they uh, you know, internet access and telephony went down uh, in Gaza, and Elon Musk had a brainwave, didn't he, Dimitri? Yeah, so uh, he thought he would replicate his success in Ukraine, although you'd think that he would learn from supplying Starlinks uh, to a conflict zone, given what happened uh, in, uh, in the Ukraine situation. But uh, he once again decided to step into it and say that he's going to provide Starlinks uh, to um, uh, aid organizations, internationally recognized aid organizations uh, that are operating in Gaza that were impacted by the uh, communications blackouts. And uh, he immediately backtracked. Uh, well, he didn't immediately backtrack. It took very the quickly. Very it quickly. took the Israelis saying, "This is not happening. Like, no way is this going to happen." For him to then turn around and say, "Oh, well, of course, I'll check with the uh, with the Israelis first. But I mean, the, the first thing that would happen if a Starlink dish made it into Gaza is some Hamas goon would turn up with a gun and steal it from this humanitarian organization. Like, it's just the most obvious thing that would happen." Chris, what do you think of all this? I, I think the lesson learned here, at least my takeaway, is that if you're an, a company operating at a global scale, particularly with designs on geopolitical, geopolitically hot regions, you have to have a competent geopolitical risk management advisory team with you. You've got or to you need to, say, get a firm like yours. Krebs Stalmos so <laughs> under contract to do that for you. Yes, uh, thanks for the plug here. Um, <laughs> I'll send the check after the show. But, I, you know, again, you, you don't just go off half-cocked into these zones. I fully appreciate what Elon was trying to accomplish here. I do. I appreciate yeah. his good intentions behind it. The road it to hell, particularly Krebs. thought The road yes, to it hell. It wasn't particularly thought out, I think. And, and I'm a big fan of, um, you know, no surprises, right? If you're going to mess around in a space like this, you do what you have, what he said he was going to do. I will check with the Israelis. You do that before you come out and say you're going to take a certain action. Yeah. You've got to kind of square the circle before you put yourself out there. Now, of course, there's a lot of confusion still uh, about how Hamas was able to stage such a large-scale uh, you know, terrorist attack uh, in southern Israel. And uh, we actually have just... I, I just wanted to include this tweet here from Shashank Joshi uh, over... He's the economist, I think, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he is. And um, he has linked through to a FT piece on Twitter, which I read the whole piece and like right towards the end, it sort of says that... Hamas uh, maintained its OPSEC by going Stone Age and using hardline phones 
while staying away from mobile phones. Like I see Dimitri's pulling his skeptical face and I'm kind of a bit skeptical about this as well. Um, but I think still there needs to be at some point, obviously not now, there's other things happening, but at some point there needs to be some accounting for uh, how SIGINT and human, you know, the entire Israeli intelligence apparatus missed this. And I'm guessing there is going to be, you know, improved OPSEC on, on Hamas's part and avoiding the types of, of technologies that are, you know, that, that Israel is very good at intercepting. That's going to be a part of this, um, surely, don't you think? Yeah, uh, I, I, I find it hard to believe that they use hardwired phone lines because if there's one thing SIGIN agencies know how to do and have known how to do for decades, it's tap phones, it's, it's tap yeah, phones right? Exactly. So that doesn't seem like it was a, uh, the thing that was the problem here. Um, what is mo much more likely is that they didn't use any devices and communicated in person and limited the number of people that had access to this information to the very few. We know, for example, that Mohammed Deef, who is responsible for designing this operation, who is the head of the military wing of Hamas, um, he's been um, uh, on the Israeli on the top of the Israelis' targeting list for decades now. And the person that was killed by the Israelis in the 90s, um, who was his mentor, was killed because his phone was booby-trapped. His mobile phone was booby-trapped by the yeah, Israelis. Yeah, the explosives exploded. in his phone. Right? Yeah. yeah, and uh, the, the word on the street is that since that time, since the 90s, Mohammed Deef has never come close to a mobile phone. <laughs> right. Yeah. So to have that type of operational security and discipline... Right, and and the other thing that's said about him is that he always sleeps in a different house every single night for decades. Right, so um, very very likely they weren't using anything that emits an electronic signature and would not just be interceptable, but would potentially reveal their locations and would allow Israelis to target them. So that's probably how they actually. I mean, did it, it. it is possible that they built some sort of. I mean, Gaza is a small place. You would think you could actually build some physical infrastructure. Um, some, you know, a PSTN network, limited, uh, you could probably build one. Um, yeah, but anytime this has happened in the past, uh, the cartels are a great example, right? They build their own P, uh, PSTN But they built networks. wireless. They didn't build PSTN. They yes. built they built. But it, all it takes is one person, yeah. right, that compromises it, and the Israelis are really good at uh, turning assets. So I don't think they would have trusted that because that yeah. has uh, the, the problem of being uh, a, a single point of failure. I and anyway, I mean, I just think it's time to, to, you know, at least very preliminary stages of thinking about how this happened, but you had something. Yeah, like I mean, there, there, there will be a lot more that comes out Yeah, in, in what the security and the intelligence failures were. You know, I do wonder, uh, you know, if you see the playbooks that were found at uh, some of the kibbutzes and, you know, at, at, the, at the, the concert that looked to have kind of targeting sets and maps and other things, those were pulled together somehow. Was that with a laptop that subsequently printed out where they stitched together like a ransom note and, you know, pasted on the paper? So there may have been technology involved here somewhere, but how they kept the, you know, the OPSEC appropriate um, I think is it's going to be interesting it's still, to find Yeah, out. it's just such an unanswered question yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Now, uh, just quickly, uh, Apple is updating is is updating iOS because I don't know the way this has been reported. I don't think is that great. So a few years ago, Apple introduced MAC address randomization into iOS, which is really good. It can stop people from being tracked, you know, physically tracked by people who drop like MAC address sensors around the place. Uh, but you know, a few people out there are having conniptions because it turns out like after you connect to a network, there's some service, some UDP service that if you query it, it'll give you the real MAC. Which is like, okay, sure, you can scan a network on this port 
to elicit a MAC address, but that's not really what Apple was trying to fix the first time around, and now they're, they're making changes to that service anyway. And this is sort of being written up as some egregious privacy failure on Apple's behalf. I mean, did you have the same take as me, Dimitri, on this? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a problem that needed to be fixed, but the reality is that there are many ways to track your phone, and uh, changing the MAC address is helpful, but it's not the key to keeping your privacy. No, I mean, you know, really the change that they made was to stop you being tracked around your, you know, shopping centers. Yeah. You know. But only if you're collect, uh, connecting to the Wi-Fi in those shopping centers. Well, no, previously it was because you're doing the SSID probes, um, looking for networks that you've previously connected to. Every time you're walking around, you know, your phone is actually broadcasting its MAC address and that's what they changed. Yeah. So I kind of feel like the, the reporting on this is a bit... Uh, and real quick, you know, I'm just going to flag it now because I am about to go on vacation, but there's some awful new VMware bugs uh, out there. So you've been warned. Uh, we've got a, we got a CVSS on one of these of 9.8 out of 10. And I'm going on vacation. You have been warned. Um, and finally, and I want to get both of your thoughts on this, uh, Jamal Khashoggi's widow had been trying to sue uh, NSO Group in a Virginia court. Uh, the judge has thrown out the lawsuit basically over jurisdictional issues, saying that Virginia wasn't really a place that had jurisdiction to, to hear the case. Uh, this is sad. I can't imagine what this, this woman has been through. You know, uh, it's hard to know where, where we go from here in terms of um, her getting any sort of redress for this. What do you think about all of this? Oh, uh, I think that you haven't heard the last of this one. The, yeah. the judge was pretty clear in saying you've got the wrong defendants here. Instead of NSO group, perhaps it's uh, other individuals, including Saudi individuals. Now the question is, do they have sovereignty? And therefore, they're immune from um, yeah. from her her case here. Also, it didn't seem that in her filing or in her claims that she established that the infection happened, happened in Virginia. In Virginia. Yeah. Now, I, I I read that and thought it was a little suspect because I would think that every subsequent time that the tool was used to access the device and effectively, you know, commit a CFAA violation, that 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 would be a new. Well, every time invasion, that, that Trojan you know. would be executing a command on the yeah. device, that would be a CFA. Yeah, I, I, so, so but I, you know, again, I think the judge was sympathetic here and said, but based on the way you've, you've filed that, that, you know, you need to go take a harder look and, and maybe change up some of uh, your defendants. Guys, we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks a lot uh, to both of you uh, for joining me to do this week's show. It's been really interesting. Uh, it's been great to hang out in, in, in person because, Chris, you know, I've, I've, we've chatted for years and it's the first time we've actually been able to see each other face to face. This so one's three years overdue. Three and a half. We were yeah, supposed to I was do supposed this to come. In, in RSA 2020. That's right. I was supposed to come to the US in 2020. I actually have my, my you know, up to date media visa, flew down to the consulate. I have a visa stamped 2020. It's a five year visa. And uh, yeah, quite funny actually getting that visa and then having the border slam shut for a couple of years. So just just my luck. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us to co-host. And Dimitri, as always, a pleasure to chat to you too, my friend. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That was Dimitri Alperovich and Chris Krebs there with a look back on the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Andrew Morris, the founder and CEO of Grey Noise. Grey Noise operates a vast and adaptive honeypot network all over the world. And the idea is that they collect, you know, 
incredible telemetry on large-scale and automated attacks that are happening over the internet. And this type of information is very handy uh, for when you want to know when something is targeting you or, you know, whether it's targeting the whole internet. And, uh, you know, grey noise can also act as a sort of early warning system, picking up uh, mass exploitation events as they kick off. But as you can imagine, uh, the internet is a noisy place. It's a very noisy place. Uh, so there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes at Grey Noise, tagging new traffic types with various attributes. Uh, but yeah, Andrew and his team have actually thrown a large language model at this work. And I regret to inform you that it actually works really well. So here is Andrew talking about the new auto-tagging tech uh, at Grey Noise, which they've called SIFT. SIFT is blowing my mind. Uh, so the short answer is that we've, you know, we've built something that basically surfaces net interesting network traffic of what's hitting our sensors across the internet, right? So there's a long kind of series of things that had to happen for that to, to, to work. So rewind a year or two ago, some folks internally at Grey Noise built basically like a, a binary sort of clusterer that what it would do is internally it would just show us instead of like, hey, this is all the traffic. It was like, here's the big blobs of traffic, right? Here's the big blobs of traffic. And then we started doing that over time. Here's the big blobs of traffic and here's how they change over time. And then what we started doing is we started looking at what are the net new blobs of traffic. So stated differently in our little classification models, we've got, hey, here's new binary payloads, new HTTP payloads that are passing, that are passing gray noise sensors. A net new cluster has emerged, right? A new cluster. So now we've seen this new cluster of things. And what we're doing is, and this is where SIFT really comes in, we're plucking out basically a, a member of that or a handful of members of that new cluster of things that gray noise has never seen before. And we're basically shoving it over to LLMs to actually decorate and tell us what is this thing? What is this thing? What does it mean, right? And then do that basic first level triage on everything that is net new and only see only surfacing the things to us that basically seem interesting and, and severe, right? And so this is the sort of journey that we've gone on to go from First, we've got to figure out what's interesting and useful in this giant series of basically needles, right? And then now it's like, cool, we've got our hands wrapped around that. But that last squishy part that's always been really tricky for us is annotating and making that into something that makes sense. So we've actually pushed that over that last part of the problem over to the LLMs. And the LLMs are actually basically doing the very first round of triage for us. So the really cool part is that we've taken the same approach and we've actually back-processed a bunch of our old data for things that took a lot of people to find. And we've basically said, hey, would SIFT have found this? Would SIFT have found, would SIFT have found Drupalgeddon? Would SIFT have found Log4J? Would SIFT have found blah, blah, blah? And the answer is yes. And what's really interesting is that a lot of the times it's been more right than us. And so <laughs> we'll go and we'll look at it and we'll be like, I didn't know that that's what that thing was for. And we'll start by saying like, we've got to fix this false positive. We're like, ah, actually it's right. Um, and so the answer is yes. And it yeah. surfaces a bunch of, it makes a lot of really- Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. You just, mentioned, you just mentioned false positives. I'd imagine that that might be a bit of an issue when using an LLM to do this stuff. And obviously you're going to have a human in the loop to double check the work that this thing is producing. Um, funnily enough, like last week's uh, sponsor interview, uh, with Socket, I mean, we were having a very similar conversation about how to use uh, LLMs. And this seems like for doing this sort of analysis, yeah, it seems like you can automate a lot of it, but you still sort of need someone there to check it. Have false positives been a bit of an issue with this? 
honestly, the false positives are, it's just a different kind of false positive. So in this case, it's like, uh, it thinks something's new when it's actually not, or no, it thinks that something's interesting and dangerous when it's actually just somebody, you know, like basically doing something with a certain header where it'll be like, Hey, this is so bad. It's someone trying to check if you're a proxy. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you know, that's gonna happen a million times, but SIF doesn't know the difference between whether that's a big deal and when it's not. The interesting thing for us is it, it doesn't misclassify very often, but it does misinterpret the severity of things. For example, it'll be like, this connect request that's going to you on this public web server is severity nine. And I'm like, it's not though, you know? Yeah, yeah, so um, it's an excitable child who's been sat in front of a console yes. for the first time, yeah. Yeah, and and there are, and then some of the things that it's not so good at is that like, then now it'll write an IDS signature for us, but sometimes that IDS signature really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so then we're like, <laughs> okay, you were right about that first part, but the second part here is like the, the rule that you created is a terrible rule, right? Yeah. So then we've got to teach it how to be better at writing rules. So you end up with a lot of the same problems that you have with maybe junior analysts of kind of like teaching them a little bit more about what matters and what doesn't. But the really cool part is that like LLMs don't sleep. LLMs don't like, this is, you, you've got as much scale on well, this thing as you want. So and I imagine, yeah, I imagine this just simplifies your whole process, right? Because instead of having to do this whole, yeah, exactly. Instead of having to do this whole end to end process, basically you can just look at what the LLM is pooping out and say, well, yeah, we'll keep that one, we'll keep that one, that one, it's nonsense, but we'll keep this one, this one, this one. Like, when it comes to judging, like, the percentage of the output that you keep versus discard, what does that ratio kind of look like? I don't have the numbers for it off the top of my head. What no, I just, do you know, know, ballpark, finger in the air kind of thing. Honestly, like, the big thing is that it just it's a lot less likely to miss things that we would that we would have missed. Yeah, and okay. it's picked up a lot of things that we have not picked up. And so what it's done is it's basically, it's created a lot more throughput to our human team for actually putting into production for something. But it's not, um, uh, and it's much more so that like, we're now looking at, instead of looking at 1 million things a day or 100,000 things a day, we're looking at a much more manageable amount of things every day. And that's what has become so beautiful. It has a perfect memory, right? It hallucinates from time to time. It's not very good at writing rules, but it's applying basically the same set of standards to the raw data that's happening day in, day out. And it's turning the things that a human has to look at into a much, much smaller, more manageable a pile of things. So we've gone from, we have to have a lot of people to look at all this traffic to write rules that go into something that a gray noise customer gets value from to actually we've basically got, you know, the five experts who understand this traffic and all they have to do is teach this thing when it's right and teach this thing when it's wrong. And that's, well, that's what they a, have that's to another, do. I mean, again, you know, same question from last week, which is, I mean, they do call it machine learning, right? You can teach these things to, to gradually improve. I know it's early days, but I mean, you know, what Feroz was saying last week is it's a matter of just sort of adjusting your prompts versus trying to, I think that's what he was saying is, uh, you know, figuring out better prompts rather than trying to change the model. I mean, has that been your approach as well? Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of it is basically just prompting the crap out of the, the, the LLM and saying like, you know, really, really, really being terse with what responses are acceptable and not. Really what you wanna get is you wanna get closer to an API where it's like predictable responses and results 
and and so you really have to kind of beat the machine into submission. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to give it any wiggle room, right? Like you you want to very narrowly scope what can come back out of that query. That's right. And then you have to end up making it kind of compliant with the rest of your sort of data model and ecosystem, which is a, a series of problems in and of itself. Do you expect that you will be able to get this thing to poop out signatures that are useful in the future? Yes, absolutely. So like the name of the game, we got to get away from, basically there's kind of two different products that we are looking for. And when I'm using the term product a little abstractly, we're looking for guidance on high end type block lists. This is a IP block it right now. And then the other product that you're looking at is a detection rule that can be eaten by another product to produce those same block requests, right? Yes. Or those same blocks. So that's ultimately what you kind of end up with is like, you really do... The short answer to your question is I am very confident in LLMs being able to produce rules that are good, that are that will generally outperform people. Um, but yeah, like what we're talking about doing is just ultimately shrinking the amount of time that it takes from stimulus to occur, reconnaissance, attack, yes. news, etc., cetera, to um, what is this thing going to look like on the wire? How do I know when it happens? And how can I make sure that it doesn't talk to my network? We're really just trying to sh shorten that thing as much as we possibly can. And for what it's worth, it's okay to me for new information to come out later on that makes a signature better after the fact. There's nothing you can do about that. So basically, like, the question, the question is not, will we be able to do this? The question is, can LLMs do this better than the state of the art right now? And, or, or can they do that this year? And I think the answer to that is yes. I do think that we're, that LMs are going to be able to produce better detection rules than humans this year with the right data. And, uh, and again, if we short, if we shorten the path to getting access to that raw data and telemetry. I think also another advantage of this approach is you might be able to shrink down the scale at which these things have to hit before you're detecting them. Right. That's right. Whereas something had to be really big for it to sort of land on an analyst's plate. Now, because you've automated that, you might see, you might be able to catch something as it's kicking off as opposed to when it's in full swing. I mean, I'm guessing that's, that's kind of what you were getting at before with shrinking that time down. Exactly. So, I mean, a, a huge part of it is that what you really want to do is you want to, you want to go from lots and lots and lots of unmanageable things into smaller number of manageable things and faster. And LLMs don't have the same biases that people do. So it's like people are going to want to see big. People are going to want to see lots. People are going to want to see vast. But computers and LLMs, they don't care about any of that stuff, right? They have really good memories. And so they're saying, look, I'm not excited about this thing because it's happening a thousand times. I'm excited about this thing because it's happening for the first time ever. That's why I'm excited about it, right? And so that that's part of the reason why I'm more confident in LLMs being effective in certain areas in this. They, they, they don't have some of the same biases that we do. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, this might sound a weird connection to make, but it sort of reminds me of like the way the mobile handset companies like Google and Apple handle crash dumps, right? So they'll see a crash dump come in from an iPhone and it's like the first time an iPhone's ever done that. And they're like, okay, that's probably you know, NSO group or whatever, right? And they go out and they crush the bug. Um, and it's the same sort of thing, right? Like when you're, when you're dealing with scale, in their case, like, you know, iPhones versus in your case, like network traffic, you, you can't do that, man. You, you know, it's not like Apple has someone going through every crash dump <clears throat> manually to say, 
oh, that's a weird one. You know, like all of this stuff has to be automated. And it is all about picking out the picking out the weird stuff. The problem, I guess, though, with networks is that they're less predictable than, you know, something like a crash on a, on a uniform OS. So it's all it's always going to come back to where you set your threshold, right, for for interest. And that's what SIFT is going to be about. Yeah, that's part of it. But like part of why the world needs a gray noise is that you need to have that base level, right? You need to have that like the 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 internet wide expected. You need to have like what normal or what we what normal is before you can figure out what's abnormal, what before you can figure out what's net new. So there's too many things to say, um, sift up every net new thing that happens to me, but there's not necessarily too many things to say, sift up everything that happens to me that's only happened to me, right? Because now you've got a really narrow aperture of you both have the control plane of like what's happening to everybody else all the time. And then you've got you, and then now that's already a really good place to start. But then a really good place to go from there is of the things that are only happening to me and, and are you know, that look like attacks only show me the ones that are dangerous attacks that are only happening to me today that have never happened to me before, because that feels to me a little bit more reminiscent of what the security analyst job was 20 years ago, right? Mm. When the internet was quieter, right? And so it's, it's a little bit of a return back to kind of, in my opinion, uh, where things kind of were before, before things were so yeah. noisy and automated. I'm guessing um, this is pretty popular with governments, right? Yeah. So Because of the scale um, thing, right? Because of the scale thing, um, because governments care about both offense and defense, um, because governments have, yeah, lots and lots and lots of networks and IP space and alerts to work through. Yeah, that's right. And so like of the people that we've been sort of surveying this with, we've gotten really, really good responses back from basically threat research teams, vulnerability management teams, stuff like this, anywhere where they're basically trying to figure out like what's going on out on the internet and do we care and do we not? And are we showing up in this? And does anyone that we care about or does anything that we care about show up here? Again, it shrinks the problem. It shrinks the problem. Yeah. All right, Andrew Morris, thanks a lot for joining us to talk through your annoyingly useful use case for LLMs. A pleasure to chat to you as always. Cheers. Thanks so much, Patrick. Anytime, anyplace. That was Andrew Morris there from Grey Noise. Big thanks to him for that and big thanks to Grey Noise for sponsoring this week's show. And again, another big thanks to Andrew for hosting me at his place for a few nights uh, in Washington. That was a lot of fun. Uh, But that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back with more Risky Biz on November 29. Uh, But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. (music) 